Today we are talking about food, particularly food sacrifice to idols. And that's not a topic that keeps you and me up at night, I'd assume. It's pretty far removed from our daily stream of life. But food, food is not. I mean, we talk about food. If you ever listen to yourself, you'll hear yourself talking about food all the time. It's it factors prominently in our conversations and prominently in our thinking, far more than we realize. You go to the grocery store and you just consider, like, how many options are there? I mean, as a kid growing up, I mean, I remember looking on the shelf and there might be two or three spaghetti sauces. And, I mean, today there's you know, <laughs> two dozen sp spaghetti sauces. You know, there was no such thing as organic 25 years ago or fair trade and you didn't spend time reading labels for ingredients wondering if this was gluten-free or dairy-free or soy or peanut free um, you know we were very conscious very conscious about what goes into our food you know nowadays we have a whole new category of human beings we have people today who are foodies <laughs> people with a refined interest in food who are eager to share their opinions and their recommendations with others I found this really interesting. I'll, I'll butcher his name. I think it's pronounced William Derisovich. He wrote an editorial in the New York Times years ago, back in 2012, in which he claimed that food has replaced art in our country's high culture. That nowadays, people talk about meals the way that they used to talk about paintings. And here he writes, you know, food now expresses the symbolic values and absorbs the spiritual en energies of the educated class. It has become invested with the meaning of life. It is seen as the path to salvation for the self and humanity, or both. And maybe that last sentence is a little bit over the top, but, but we do invest all kinds of moral judgments related to food. And, I mean, honestly, many of us feel shame about what we eat. I mean, who, who here wants to raise their hand and admit to having a, a secret a chocolate stash? <laughs> or, you know, or, or maybe, you, maybe you have lied, maybe you've lied to your spouse before about a charge on the credit card statement, you know, somehow related, you know, to food, right? And we, listen to the things that we say. We say words like, oh, I was bad, I had a brownie. Or, I'm not, I'm not eating that tonight, I'm being good. I, that was, those were words that were spoken in my home last night about like an apple cobbler. I'm not going to eat it because I'm being good tonight. And you think about it, good, good, bad? I mean, those are languages of, of morality. <laughs> they may even be terms of salvation. So, yeah, we... The way that we think about and relate to food goes much deeper than what we may initially realize. Now, Paul's going to spend three whole chapters of the book discussing the food issues of his day that are not identical to our issues, but I think we would do well in considering his issues and then seeing if there are some parallels to our own. So let's read in verses 1 through 13. He writes, Now about food sacrifice to idols, oh, we know that... We all have knowledge. I'll come back to the, the quotations there in a minute. Knowledge puffs up, he says, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet uh, know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols then, we know that, again, quotations here, an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one, 
Well, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. I'm not going to unpack those two verses, but I mean, you can kind of hear that they're just laden with Trinitarian meaning. Uh, All things are through him and we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We We are not worse off if we don't eat. We are not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours is in no, it, yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, uh, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. Now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are, you are sinning against Christ, Messiah. Therefore, and here kind of the money quote, right? Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never eat meat again so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Let's pray. Again, we come to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and and just needing wisdom. um, Give us the wisdom to approach our food with gratitude, mindful of the nourishment and the pleasure it provides to our bodies, uh, and also the opportunities it gives us to share with others. Um, but help us not to, not to absolutize food and treat it as a god, and nor to use our freedom with food to some way harm others. Rather, we, we just sincerely pray that you would give us a profound love for every image bearer on this planet, and that we would use food as a means to bring us together through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is himself the bread of heaven, the bread of life. Amen. Okay, number one, background. Let's jump into a little bit of background. Each town or city in the Roman Empire had uh, shrines to gods and goddesses, in addition to the larger temples to the great gods, like you say, Apollos or, or Venus. And what most people would do is they would bring their animals to either the shrine or particularly to the temple and have that animal, you know, sacrificed. Uh, The way it would be done, uh, curiously, in the Roman Empire, priests and priestesses did not sacrifice. It was always the assistant to the priest or priestess. Normally, they would slit the animal's throat, let it bleed out, then they would take the, the animal carcass, they would burn it, they would, but they wouldn't consume all of the carcass. They They would basically barbecue it, and then they would serve the meat as a centerpiece of a meal for the worshipers. And, you know, in in their their day, you didn't get to eat meat very often, so taking your animal to the barbecue, so to speak, like that was a special occasion. But there was usually more meat than worshipers there to eat, and so other people would come to the temple, and, and they would be able to share in the food which had been offered to the god. And in that way, we kind of talked about it already, in that way, temples, strangely enough, functioned like ancient restaurants. You could go and you would have, you know, good food there, meat there. But even that would fail to use up all of the sacrificed meat. So, Normally, what the temple officials would do is they would take that meat out into the agora, out into the marketplace, 
and they, it would be sold there, you know, in the normal way. And so, uh, what you need to know is most of the food that was sold in the marketplace in a city like Corinth, all, basically all of the meat had been previously sacrificed to some god, you know, in a pagan sacrifice. Well, think about for a moment if you're a, a Jew living in the ancient world, are you going to... F- you going to be okay with that? <laughs> and the answer is no. <laughs> that a Jew would refuse to eat meat that, would, that was even sold in the marketplace. They were afraid of being um, taint, you know, tainted by any association with paganism. What the Jews would normally try and do is they would find a Jewish butcher in a city because they knew that the meat from the Jewish butcher was safe, it was kosher. And if they couldn't find or there was no Jewish butcher available to them, then they would simply abstain from meat altogether. They wouldn't eat it at all because they didn't want to be involved with, you know, the worship of idols. The situation in Paul's day, it sounds like there are some Christians in the church, maybe teachers, maybe traveling teachers, who are saying not only that is it okay to just eat any meat that you get in the marketplace, but it's also, it's also okay to go to the temples themselves and eat there. You know, blend in as part of the crowd, uh, you know, enjoy a good meal, it's cheap, that's what we all do. There were also imperial festivals at the time. You know, increasingly the emperor was, had, was becoming uh, divine. So the, the Roman Empire was, there was, he was like, saying, I am a god, and the, the Roman family, uh, the royal family, w- was claiming that they were gods, and so there would be imperial festivals that you would go to and eat meat there that is all kind of, you, know, you see, it gets kind of messy. <laughs> um, and so that was just creating problems in the church. Number two, we think that these teachers then end up coining those slogans that I mentioned that were in the Quotations that they number one like we all know that we all have knowledge and we we do have knowledge Like we have the knowledge of God. We have the knowledge of Jesus Christ the Messiah Um, We know that we can't be affected by anything as trivial and insignificant as eating food that's been offered to an idol That's what our knowledge tells us they would say verse 4 And we know that an idol is nothing in the world. I mean an idol is just it's wood it's metal it's it's fake it's man-made so going into a temple and eating this sacrificial meat there they said it it doesn't matter it can't hurt you in verse four we also know that there is no god but one and we know that god but paul's response to these slogans is basically it's fine that you know these things it's not fine that you know, you got the right theology of the situation, but what matters is not your knowledge about this or that, about gods or goddesses. What matters, I mean, what matters, what always matters is love. You know, what matters is how your words and your actions, you know, affect the people around you. And so you go back to verse one, that great phrase, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And the problem is, the problem, you could say one of the great problems of the world, even the world today, is there's a lot of people with knowledge, you know, but we don't love each other, do we? You know, and there's just so much, so much hatred. I spent too much time on Twitter again this week. I mean, just seeing some of the images that are posted there. 
And, and just watching people t- do hot takes for the sole purpose of trying to just create pain and instigate you know, anger and divisions. Um, well, Paul, he says the problem he was dealing with is not everybody has the knowledge that idols are nothing. You know, some people had come out of a way of life of paganism into Christianity, and they had been totally accustomed to eating idol food with the assumption that, like, an idol's real, the food belongs to the idol, it, it, it's, it's all a mess. I mean, Paul knows it's not true. He, his conscience is clear. Like, Paul, Paul's a man who could, could eat any piece of steak that was set before him and not worry an, a minute about where it came from, you know, what happened to it previously. But he realizes that not everybody else's consciences are are in the same place as his. Not every conscience is the same place. Number three. So what is conscience? You know, conscience is simply, isn't it just mostly our deep-seated sense of of right or wrong, of moral uh, or immoral? Paul knows that human consciences can get things wrong, and and so that means human consciences can also be re-educated. They can be reset. But he knows that from years of pastoral experience, re-educating somebody's conscience is something that takes time and it takes patience. It won't do simply to tell people to give up their deep inner ideas that they have at the moment and adopt some other ones instead. Because even if they go along with you, their conscience, the very thing that you were trying to re-educate, will be deeply troubled and will be telling them that they are in the wrong place. You know, many of these Christians in Corinth, they came out of paganism, and they had very intense memories of what that was like. I mean, they've been regular worshipers in the shrines and the temples prior to their conversion. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. Like, they, when they smelled the meat, like, the, just the olfactory senses just triggered all kinds of places in their past. The dark sense of mystery and fear that might have accompanied their trips to the temple— the sense that in feasting at the God's table, you were really eating and drinking the God himself, and the God was becoming part of you. Um, or even, and we talked about it during the sex stuff, the sex section, I should say, how, I mean, there are temple prostitutes, thousands of them there, you know, boys and girls and men and women who are just waiting for you right outside. If you pay them a little bit of money, then you know, an extra payment to the God, and, you know, those are the things that happen. If that was your way of life before, and then you came to Jesus, you felt like you were being rescued from that darkness, brought into the light, and, and you began to see that true worship was nothing like that, and, and true hum, truly true human living was nothing like that, and you had escaped, and you were free only to walk into another Christian's house and see them eating meat on the table, um, smelling the meat, tasting the meat, it would, it would just trigger you. It would bring back all of those memories. The priest chanting and the drink and the prostitutes, it would bring it all back. And so I think one thing that stands out to me is, I mean, this is a time long before they had categories of trauma and trauma informed. And yet, There's something like that going on here because Paul is recognizing that it takes a long time to overcome those those horrible memories. And that our consciences, which are so tied to our previous lived experience, they are not like 
uh, a light switch where you just flip it on, okay, fine, flip it off, no, yes, no, it, no, it can, it can take years of teaching and prayer and wise help for meat issues, for meat issues to finally dissipate. Does that make sense? I was trying to think of um, modern examples, and I don't know if I did a good job of coming up with them, but I was thinking of maybe somebody who faced former substance abuse. Um, either they were addicted to drugs, or that was part of their family of origin, or they might find it really distressing to be around Christians who use or endorse, say, recreational drugs or, or heavy drinking today. Even if those things are illegal, that, that, that might be quite troubling to their conscience, wouldn't it? Gambling addiction, I think we'll continue to see that becoming more and more of a, a really big issue in our society. Former, former gambling addicts were individuals that were affected by the consequences of gambling addiction in their families. You know, they might be pretty troubled by Christians engaging in gambling activities today, even, even if it's in a social context. And then the last one I came up with, you know, people who struggle with sexual addiction or have a history of sexual trauma, they might be deeply disturbed by discussions or behaviors related to sexuality within the church, you know, especially if they, especially if they perceive it to be inappropriate or, or triggering. Oh, I got one more. You know, people dealing with mental health issues like depression, anxiety, or PTSD, they might find a troubling if Christians in the community downplay the importance of mental health treatments or therapy or say, oh, what we should really do is we should rely solely on, on prayer for healing that, that malady. Paul's very concerned about the troubled conscience. You know, he deeply concerned for such people. He doesn't want their consciences to be troubled. He doesn't want them to do anything that their conscience tells them is wrong, and he does not want any young Christian or any Christian altogether to be pulled back into, you know, a former way of life. And so his answer is number four. It's, <laughs> it's love. It is love. The key verse is verse 13, where he writes, therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother or sister to fall. And that is, I, it's, it's the money quote. It's, it's really the, the big challenge that this passage, you know, poses for a young, like, fledgling Christian community like our own. How much of my freedom would I be willing to sacrifice for the spiritual good or just for the good of another human being? Like, would, would I be willing to say, pull that verse back up real quick, John. Would I be willing to say that in 13? That if, if meat causes my brother or sister to fall, I'll never eat meat again. Like, I love meat. <laughs> I, love, I love meat. I love coffee. I hate chocolate, so I'll give that one up. <laughs> but, I mean, really, the passage boils down to, I love, you fill in the blank, do I love you more? Do I, do I love community more than the thing that, that I love so much? Now, just to clarify, the situation that Paul is speaking is of a weaker Christian who is, again, tempted to do things that they think that they are wrong. Eating meat, they think it's wrong. 
He's worried that there might be a, an older Christian, a stronger Christian, who behaves in such a way, eats meat that shocks or distresses this other Christian, and leads that younger Christian to do something their conscience is telling them is wrong. Um, that stronger Christian is potentially going to make the weaker one violate their conscience. And in Christianity, violating your conscience is a sin. And love is the power that refuses to do that. Love refuses to do something that's going to to cause another person to be greatly troubled and ultimately to do spiritual damage to themselves and disobeying their conscience. Love is always the power that's going to look out for the good of the other. Love is always going to be concerned about how, what effect might my words or behaviors have on something else. And love, and this is the hardest part of it all, love is willing to relinquish certain rights, things that I am entitled to. I'm really entitled to this. I'm actually right on this issue. I'm correct on this issue, and you're incorrect on this issue. But I'm willing to let that go for your good. Now, I'm struck by the fact that they did have the right to eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. Now, they didn't have the right to go into the idol's temple itself, and that'll be, I think, chapter 9 and chapter 10. But they relinquished. Paul said, we will relinquish that right because we belong to each other. We're all part of the Messiah's body. We've all been united into one body, and so we must take care of one another. What it boils down to, and I should have put this up on the screen, what it boils down to is loving people is more important than being right. Loving even the people that you disagree with, or I should say especially the people that you disagree with, is more important than being right. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking, um, like, wow, this, this is ripe for potential abuse. I mean, does this teaching hold that, the, that you have the majority in a church and they can be held hostage by a tiny minority with narrow scruples, you know, the narrow scruples of a cranky few, and we can't do anything because we were, we're afraid we might offend, you know, this, you know, Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so who uh, is, you know, gets upset about everything. Is, 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 that, is that a potential? And I, I don't think it is. And the reason why is look at how Jesus relates to the Pharisees. Long-standing feud between them and the Gospels. I mean, Jesus would heal people on the Sabbath. I mean, he'd heal a man or a woman, and he'd be like, he'd heal him, and he'd turn to the Pharisee and say, so what do you think about that? <laughs> and they didn't like that, right? Because they were very, they, they had cranky, they had very trite scruples about the Sabbath. And yet Jesus didn't feel obligated to not offend them or their sensibilities. And so why are the two situations different? Why is that different than this? And the answer is because the Pharisees were not the weaker brother. They were the sanctimonious, uh, arrogant, fault-finding older brother who who thought they were right. And they were, their consciences were not being tempted to do something that they didn't think that they should be doing because they thought Jesus was entirely wrong. They're, they're sure they're right. And so I think in 1 Corinthians 8, you know, this isn't an excuse for people with badly educated consciences, you know, full of rules and restrictions, which have nothing to do with the gospel itself and everything to do with a particular social subculture to try to insist that all other good Christians should join them in their tight little world. No, a church shouldn't be held hostage by a, a few stronger, stronger brothers and sisters. In conclusion, I want to say one final thing about food, number five, and it's about absolutizing food. Yes, that is a word, absolutizing. 
You know, but you think about it, food has become uh, moral. It's, it's a very like, moral category for us today. There's an amount, enormous amount of moralism and anxiety in our culture associated with our food. People feel judged by their food choices. Have you ever seen uh, the comedian um, Jim Gaffigan? He has this really funny shtick where he goes to a fast food restaurant and he, he runs into somebody he knows at the fast food restaurant and he's, he's ashamed that he's been caught there. And so he's making all these excuses. He's like, oh, of course I don't eat here. No, 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 no. Uh, this is just for the kids. And then he realizes, actually, no, 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 no. My kids never eat this garbage. It's for the babysitter. <laughs> My kids are doing this for the babysitter, you know. He's just making excuses. You think that he was caught in an adult entertainment store rather than a place where millions and millions of people dine. But we all do it. We, make a, we, make, we apologize for the foods that we eat. How often do you find yourself saying, oh, I'm sorry that I'm eating this in front of you right now. Like, turn, turn away while I pound this burger, you know. And I think it's largely largely part of, like, what diet culture has become. You know, in diet culture, meals are a daily and sometimes hourly drama of discipline and deprivation and self-satisfaction. And then if I break my diet, you know, indulgence, and it's all laden with all kinds of guilt. David Zoll, who I'm taking some of this from, he said, you know, food is so tempting as a religious object because of the control it affords, whether that be over your body or image or more often than not, your feelings. You know, after all, many of us use food to dole out rewards to ourselves. You know, ice cream after a long, hard day, a candy bar during a break from work, a cheeseburger on the way home from the gym. And some people withhold food in order to punish themselves, you know, or for the sake of rewards. Someone told me recently that nothing tastes better than skinny. Clearly, he hadn't tried Talenti sea salt caramel gelato. <laughs> that goop definitely tastes better than skinny. <laughs> so how, how does Paul deal with those who absolutize food? Uh, how does he respond to those who absolutize food? He's very clear. He relativizes it. He relativizes food. Verse 8, he says, Food will not bring us close to God. We're not worse off if we don't eat, and we're not better if we do eat. To, to Paul, food does not p- occupy a place of ultimate importance. The, the God that we're trying to appease in our religion of food, the God of comfort, or the God of discipline, the, the God of looking good, the God of feeling good, he, he's basically saying that God does not exist. That God is just an idol. It's just an idol. Remember back when, you, when I was a kid, I think that there was this nutrition push on Saturday mornings, like maybe it was the ad council that put out a little jingle. I can't remember the origin of it, but it, it was this. You are what you eat from your head down to your feet. Anybody remember? Okay, at least a couple of us. You are what you eat. From your head down to your feet. That is bad, bad news. Because you're not. We, we are not. We are not what we eat. You know, the cult of nutrition be damned. And I try to eat healthy, but we are not what we eat. See, Paul is able to relativize this subject because he knows 
that the only thing that ultimately, ultimately matters in life is our standing before God, and that has already been established for us in Jesus. Verse 6, for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him. We exist for him, and there is one Lord Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. And here we come to the core of Christianity. Now, that God relates to you and to me not on the basis of what I do or don't do or what I eat or don't eat, but on the basis of his son, on Christ's Christ's actions and his, his whole life on our behalf. And so that means that the threat, the threat of failure, the threat of judgment, and the threat of j- condemnation ha- has all been removed. In Jesus' life, by his death and with his resurrection, he secured for us all the things that we come into this world hungry for, yet are incapable of securing for ourselves. You know, all the pardon, all the approval, the purpose, the righteousness, the purity, the significance, the worth— And the affection, all of it, that you and I crave are to be found in his son, Jesus Christ. And so you know what? Nothing that you put into your body uh, can add or subtract from that. You know, the heading under which a Christian lives does not read, do more, be more, eat better. You know, it reads, it is finished. You know, the word spoken on the cross. And that's very good news for us to hear about our food. Amen.